Hey everyone, it's Raghu. I'm back here with David, as you can see. Uh, he and hi, Dave. Hi, Raghu. I haven't, uh, we haven't really chatted for quite some time. Actually, before I went to India, I just got back. And uh, so I'm, I'm happy you are here because I've got so much on my mind. And you might as well. I think I do, yeah. <laughs> Um, so I guess I should just say, I mean, I went through the Himalayas, I was in the middle of India in a jungle and, uh, it was uh, quite a trip because, uh, uh, my health wasn't like hundred percent. So there was always that kind of overriding thing. India is, is not a great place for that, but anyhow, it turned out okay. And I was inspired by uh, these amazing people that came on this yatra into the Himalayas, which uh, uh, Saraswati does, and I join occasionally, and I did join this time, and just following in Ramdas's footsteps. It's quite a tour, uh, quite a retreat, and then they went down to the middle of India, and uh, just the inspiration of wow, there are people who really give a shit about self-inquiry at the very least uh maybe we do stand a chance because you know it, i don't know if you feel this way but i i really do feel that alongside of the inner inquiry that many next gen people uh, are engaging in at the same time they're interested in doing something about what's going on in our world and social action that combo wasn't quite like you and i remember in the late 60s early 70s I think there was less altruistic intention on our part. Is that true? I think so. You know, remember, I was in living in Cambridge, uh, and in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and there were so many universities there, and MIT and Harvard and Tufts, where I taught, uh, were very on this. I mean, in terms of the student population, there were there were meetings and riots and all kinds of things like two or three times a week. So the social action was there. I'm not sure that the um, self-enquiry was there in the same way as it is now because yoga was still, um, you know, a fairly rare undertaking. Yeah. And so I see it sort of the backwards way because yeah. of where I lived. Yeah. Oh, that's, uh, that's weird because yeah. the way for me it was – Everybody I knew was interested, you know, through psychedelics and then into the Eastern mystic traditions. And um, and and we were kind of a little bit lame. I mean, now, I'm Canadian, so it's a little, it's, it is different, okay? <laughs> it is, well, and you're British, so it is yeah. a little different for us. And uh, in, in that way, um, we weren't being conscribed, right, <laughs> into... Uh, into the armed force so it's that is a huge huge gap but at the same time i i found that most people around me and, and obviously it was centric central around my own interest around spirituality there was a lack of uh attention to social the the people who are doing social action were like you say they that's all they were interested in and they weren't interested in any so there was a real divide there seems to be less of one now it's inspiring that's all I, uh, you know. Yes, I, I completely agree with that. Mm. I mean, not only based upon 
people I meet, but also on social media and seeing what how um, people are reacting to this extreme um, situation that we find ourselves in mm. uh, in 2019, which is when we're talking from. And uh, young people I know are not complacent about this and understand very well how um, difficult it is to live with uh, an authoritarian metamorphosis in the United States, which no one, I think, predicted. There have been some pretty bad things going on since World War II, but the idea of um, an administration that was the exact diametrical op opposite to democratic principles was not envisaged, mm. in, in my opinion. Yeah. You know. So. Uh, all the more reason for people getting their own stuff inside them straightened out because otherwise right. it just increases polarization. So uh, that to me is, is central. And, and not that I have achieved that by any means, by the way. Uh, so it is a work in progress uh, for everyone, mm. uh, I believe. So I was, that's all I had to say. I was inspired by that. But going forward, I did want to share a central thing that really grabbed me in India, and it's happened to me before, but this time it, it's, um, it was really, sh it had a sharp feel to it, you know, instead of a dull ache, a sharp edge. And, uh, I guess it's, it's a matter of just seeing so, I was seeing so clearly, and that happens when you go to India. I mean, it's a total, it puts you so far deep inside yourself for various reasons. And, um, I just saw how clearly the level of projections that I had coming out from me about everything, and therefore everything that happened, those projections created reactions as well, because they go in hand in hand, right? You're going to think something, and then that thing may not happen the way you projected it, even a small thing. Uh, you know, getting some yogurt in a stand thinking of it the way I thought of it, maybe I had this great yogurt like 20 years ago or something, and that didn't happen at all. In fact, maybe the opposite happened. A rat, uh, you know, maybe a rat just popped out of them behind it or something. Anyhow, reaction happens after that. So I just saw so clearly this, this the enormous uh, unknowing that is going on in my little world here. And um, it became something to really uh, think about and deal with. And so I was just telling you before we got on uh, that uh, Glenn, our pal Glenn Desmier, yes, he just had sent me a note that, you know, I hadn't read my mail in a while, so uh, or some of my mail in a while. So he said, um, he, said he, he remembers uh, how taken I was with Robert Thurman's explanation of ignorance as not merely not knowing, but wrongly knowing. And that, and I, I read that today, I went, Jesus, yeah, exactly, my total experience. And in a way, it's horrifying. And in another way, it's funnier than shit, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you can step back from it. Um, but so here he found there's some Lama named uh, Lama Lena, who I may have met actually, who was explaining ignorance, unlike in English, where the word means lack of knowledge. In Tibetan, it means false knowledge. Just think of that. 
the huge gap between the meanings of those two things, the way they think and the way we think, right? Uh, it's incredible. Uh, it's not the absence of a pair of sunglasses that you need to see clearly. It's the smudge on the lens. Ignorance right. is something you remove, not a lack of something. Obscuration is a better translation of ignorance. And, uh, you know, it's that which blocks you from seeing clearly. So that just absolutely zeroed in on on what uh, much of, I mean, that was the only thing that was happening. But it was, I would just be in the car, just going down on these, I, you know, you do a lot of driving in India, going through country roads down. I mean, in this case, I went down into a jungle. And in that course of that, you know, life just unfolds as you drive just out your window. And then you start to, I was seeing the reality of life, in, in which is very difficult. Uh, and 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 the and just watch the projections going out to every uh everything that i saw it was really amazing that's what you can do dave when you're in a car for 8 hours by the way okay right you start right. to think about this shit um so yeah i just wanted to share that was a central um happening for me uh and how 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 clearly uh i had I had seen this, you know, it's funny how you see, you think you see things pretty clearly and then suddenly, whoa, you know, they, they come way more into focus. Yeah. I, you know, living in, in a big city, there's some analogies there. Um, you know, that, um, I live in New York and it's a whole different way of, seeing what you saw but it amounts to the same thing because there are just so many people of so many kinds and i'm not talking about diversity of race or gender i'm just talking about what people do you know how they act and how they feel like they should act given the context that they find themselves in that they put themselves in <clears throat> the business world the entertainment world and um i have to admit that my um, moments of truth on that level often came via uh, working in, in, in the movie area, entertainment, television, music, and seeing such intense, um, obsessive, ego-based behavior and realizing that I had it too, but that at some point because of the great fortune of coming into contact with wise men and women, if not even further than that, higher than that, if you like, but at least people of the Ramdas ilk. There's no one like Ramdas, but we know there are many great teachers. And because of that, I was able to see very long time ago, I'm talking in the late 70s, that I really wanted no part of it. And that the part I had with it was by fortune and flow and just being in certain places, certain times with certain people. But the actual business of, of, of being a part of this system, uh, which could be very attractive, you know, superficially, you know, you get things that other people only dream about. You know, when I was at Mercury or Warner Brothers, you know, a driver, you know, to on a snap of a finger to be driven anywhere uh, and just sit there in the back with your phone and or getting into places for free or getting free stuff or eating a great restaurant. It all seems very good. 
you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald's phrase, the rich are different. Um, Scott, Farrell, Scott Fitzgerald wasn't stupid enough to say it's better. He just said it's different. And it is. And it can be extremely hypnotic and, and can assail that non-attachment and non-judgmentalism that comes from real study, real practice. So I consider myself incredibly fortunate because I was, I was ready to jump into that. And then I saw that I just didn't have the chops for it, really. You know, which are chops that you now see it in big business and entertainment and so forth. I mean, if, if anybody watches the television show Succession on HBO, that's what it's all about. It's about power and greed. It's a little difficult to take, in my opinion. People love that show. I find it a little difficult to process because it is so vile and maybe a little bit over the top in terms of the way people really are. But that business of projecting what you think is true because you want it to be true, you want it. You want that power. You want that influence. You want those free goods. You want, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Isn't it just amazing that, that you would still go on wanting that for life, really, if you weren't sort of incredibly fortunate enough to have come across um, teachers? Uh, and you once said something that was very profound and, and in a way kind of sad. Uh, you said it on the podcast, but you said it to me many times, which is that Tibet was invaded by the fascist Chinese. Uh, and people call them communists. I've got to stop that. They weren't communists. They were fascists. And they invaded Tibet and, and burned the temples and killed a lot of the monks and nuns. And the ones that could get out, including His Holiness and Kamapa, and many hundreds and maybe thousands of incredibly trained Buddhist teachers and practitioners, left and went to Italy, the UK, France. United States, Canada, Australia, and other countries. And we got them. And what an incredible gift from such suffering and deprivation. But they were so incredible that they also thought that they were fortunate to be able to bring other people into the, into the flock that they would never have met. They would not have met Raga or Dave or KD or, you know, Saraswati or Parvati or people we know. Uh, they would have just been there uh, in the monastery, practicing, learning, and, you know, administering to their community. Yeah. And, and, but they, they came here. Yeah. I, and not only that, just to interrupt for a second, because it reminds me, not only that, which is what happened as by virtue of this uh, enormous karmic event, that invasion and what it did. There was also monks, like one monk that I know and met, Garchen Rinpoche. And he, um, I actually had the fortune to drive him around in Malibu once when he was giving teachings there many years ago. And he got captured by the Chinese and put into a prison and with a bunch of other monks and so on. And in that prison, he met his guru who trained him and to the point where, as the, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama says, I'm not sitting around hating the Chinese. I have compassion for the Chinese. 
that and I saw that in this in this monk Garchen Rinpoche, incredible lama. So internally, stuff happened. And he did get to the West and escaped. Uh, I don't know how that happened. I can't remember. But internally, in in so many different ways, how profound was what happened for for them as individuals, as well as what happened in terms of us meeting the Dharma, Tibetan Dharma. Pretty amazing. Yes. And of course, that's just part of it. There are many other um, segments of the Dharmic teaching community, um, including, of course, um, the the Bhaktas that, that we all love and who gave us a different kind of teaching uh, by osmosis and by presence and not necessarily by um, uh, deep writings. Mm. Uh, and and we are, are I mean, we are really lucky because you know I in my day you know w- when this comes into my consciousness it is pretty much fifty percent fifty percent devotional uh, relief and um, the kind of intellectual um, uh, you know constructs that are in the teachings of the Rinpoches in my case the Zogchen masters or some of them and to get those two uh, constituent parts of 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 self awareness uh is amazing and it leads you always further to another one to another one to another one and sometimes to nothing uh because eventually you say okay i got it um now i've just got to divest myself of that just as much as i have to divest myself of judgmentalism and negativism and hatred I mean, I've gone through some pretty heavy stages in these last four years of this of this administration in the United States, because I know um, that there is the the road of hatred and anger it leads nowhere except back to yourself. And therefore, what do you replace that with when you're seeing um, atrocious, even surreally absurd and and you know Orwellian actions? Um, for those that are listening to this in the future, uh, you know, recently the um, person that leads his country or lives in the house in the Washington, you know, deliberately caused a war. There's no question about it. He did. And the Turks are now taking parts of Syria and really hurting massive amounts of Kurdish people. And he called it an, a, a great progress forward in civilization. <laughs> A beautiful, beautiful change. And this is very Hitlerite, of course. And it's also very Chinese in terms of the, the period between ni- the 1920s and 1948, when they finally annexed both their own country and, and you know, took it from the um, patriarchy that existed before and then took Tibet. And now we see nothing as, as personally um, hurt, hurting as that here, but a trend which could be a real problem for future generations here, if there are any. Um, and I think there will be. But, you know, how do you deal with this? We've talked about it a lot. And one of them is certainly not to divide yourself from it as if we are angels and they are devils. Yeah, well, but just that doesn't tone, work. Dave, just your tone of voice is uh, scary. And, uh-huh. and when I, if I was, the, I'd be scary too. I, I'd get a tone. 
but yeah. I was just leaning back and just kind of objectively viewing based on this whole thing around projections that I was talking about. I like stop mine for a second, right? Even the one that was, yeah, I'd be, I'd, I'd have, I'd probably have a bigger tone, or you know, um, and and see how easily, without thinking, we fall into this place. Yeah, that yeah. that is furthering everything, furthering the negativity, and so I, there's nothing for me but to find um through deeper practice deeper wisdom find and in uh, a in a more clear perspective keep working on that so that i am not personally contributing in the way that i am now and that doesn't mean you stop doing whatever you may or may not do in terms of protesting uh, injustice but at the same time, you know, it's back to this thing. We've been talking about it forever. Without working on yourself, none of this stuff is going to be meaningful because it's going to have the opposite effect. But I just saw for a second, yeah, clearly what um, yeah. what is a big issue for all of us. Well, anger, you know. Yeah. I'm angry that that it, something happened like this. But I also am aware of the fact that, you know, basically it, that doesn't help. Maybe it helps you know, get you off your ass. Yeah, there's righteous to, anger. To do there, something. There, yeah, definitely yeah. there is using anger. There's uh, and, yeah. uh, Righteous is not the right word because that's a tough word too because we, we all have that and it comes from the wrong place. Right. But um, shall we say, you know, in, in Buddhist principles, it would be right anger. They don't have such a thing. I think they may. We'll have to talk to one of our Buddhist friends, something that would uh, ex explicate that. But yes, I yeah, that energy is is there as long as you are not attached to it. That's right. Yeah. You know, that's Which is very difficult because sometimes to get something going, you, you, you know, you sort of play this game and they are all games, these things. But um, when you see other people suffering in a way that I'm not personally suffering, I mean, you know, uh, thus far. Um, and so, yeah, it is a projection because, you know, you. but the, it, it, it's not an easy subject because, you know, um, complacency uh will allow all kinds of of, of yeah. you know sort of terrifying things to happen and did and we see that happening again in some ways but i you know to get back to the more positive aspect i mean people who are now um starting their life uh and or their adult life you know are seeing all this stuff and they they just won't take it you know it's like no i'm not i'm not going to do that i'm not going to eat uh, animals that are factory fed and murdered and i'm not going to do any of that i've met so many people who just even wouldn't yeah. think of that kind of of indulgence you know of, of eating that kind of, of eating animals and, and treating them in the way they do and uh, people who are making stuff for you that are living in terrible conditions these things would always have been um opposed by both conscious and less conscious people uh, the question is, in the bigger picture of life and death and this fleeting life, and it is fleeting because I can hardly believe that I'm not, you know, a young dude living in Massachusetts, you know, smoking a lot of weed and, and you know, um, charming the girl. I can't believe it went by so fast. It really did. And so what does that teach you? Well, 
for me, it, it, it's perspective that it teaches you, right? I mean, and that's where, again, the great teachers help you because, um, and, and it is astonishing that people who are, you know, half a century younger, have many of them have that perspective. Mm. Without, you know, I mean, when you're young, you do things that you don't do when you're older. But a lot of young people are doing those things that we're doing now that, as yeah. we speak yeah, no. and are divesting I, themselves of hypocrisy. For I instance. got that all when I was in India. That's why I was yeah. so inspired. It was so yeah. great. I can't tell you. But, um, you know, so we're talking about, okay, let's talk about an antidote to the anger, to the polarization inside ourselves to the righteousness uh, because that's what this is all about i mean we uh, you know walking each other home as ramdas put it right um so you uh we have this movie becoming nobody which i'm hoping anybody who's listening already knows about um and in fact uh, it's been playing in theaters for the last couple of months and um and everybody out there, this is the first time you're going to hear of it. But it is going to be available as a download or DVD in January 2020. Okay? And you go to ramdas.org, sign up to the email list there, and you will get uh, a notice about all that and all of our other wonderful offerings. Okay? That's our um, mid-podcast commercial, Dave. Yeah, it was a good. Uh, one. But well but done. David and I were on a panel at the Rubin when it was playing there about a month ago, and uh, in New York, uh, just finished that run the other day actually, and um, certainly this movie is is about the antidote to anger, greed, um, attachment, and uh, all of the obscurations that we talked about at the very beginning here. So, uh, and David had uh, a couple of nice comments that I'd love for you to share uh, from that time. Yeah, well, there are actually comments I didn't make uh, <laughs> on that stage. Well, at great, the museum. better. <laughs> but they're just notes that I, but I never brought out my notes because the flow was uh -huh. was very was very um, encouraging, and and it was a terrific experience. For me, the film uh, actually, it 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 not only does what you just said it does but it, it also shows the the deeper aspect of of ramdas's um distinction between role playing and, and soul um awareness and that as the film progresses uh you see because you see him speaking from the past and hear him and then gradually uh jamie cutter the the director and and sort of interviewer um you know, brings it out through his own self-awareness and then gradually bringing it out of Ramdas. And the film progresses. So the film is, uh, you know, becoming nobody, but that's sort of what you see. And, you and you, you know, at first glance, someone would say, well, why would you want to be nobody? You were born. We have a life. We have all kinds of opportunities to do all kinds of things and achieve things. That's true. And it's nice. But at the end of the day, uh, what the film did for me was it made me understand that as one matures, uh, you begin to understand that this is just a fleeting moment and that the eternity, eternity and infinity of the entire thing goes on and has gone on and is subterranean. 
uh, and sometimes obvious and sometimes not. And so um, the practices, if you do them, uh, no matter what sort of extreme or non-extreme you are about them, will eventually become ingrained. Krishnadas once said that uh, when you chant the names of the divine, even when you're not chanting, if you do it enough, they're there. They're going. They're moving. The wheels of chant are moving in your in your consciousness because you do it so much that eventually they are there. Not just as a, 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 a chant, but as a recourse, a way of gaining perspective. And that becoming nobody doesn't mean uh, necessarily living a life of, of, of the sadhu, uh, although there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, you can enjoy life as an artist or as a, a, an artisan or a builder or a stonemason or whatever. And, and that's good. But I think Ramdas made it clear to me over the period that I've been listening to him that these two things, these planes of existence and consciousness are simultaneous. So just as KD said that as you go about your day, the chant is subterranean within you. And it can affect you at any moment if you actually really are practicing. So the film really did that for me. Mm. And um, and he says in the film at one point to Jamie, I believe, um, there are different planes. Yeah, you can be simultaneously on more than one occurring. Place. Yeah, more than one right? plane at a time. And yeah. and and um, becoming this being that begins to appreciate via the teaching and the practice together, teaching and practice. Uh, is a beautiful, beautiful growth, uh, beautiful growth into awareness, the awareness of being, not just the awareness of, of what's going on around you or the good or the bad or the ugly or the pleasant or the unpleasant or the trendy or the whatever. That's awareness. What is the awareness of being? Because that is natural mind. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the film really did that for me. Yeah. But you, you brought know. up something that's really important. Becoming nobody doesn't mean you suddenly become, you know, you have the personality of a fly and you're just there, okay? It does not mean that. Is everything that is going on, including one's ambition, for instance, to do stuff, uh, to accomplish things, to produce things, to include all the way through family life or whatever it may be, career, uh, Becoming nobody is like uh, a process of doing what you just described, David, in terms of teaching and practice, and to remove the glue. It's like this glue is solidified so that you absolutely believe all of the things that you are doing, and rather than sitting back in the being and watch, as in the movie Ramda said, it's much more fun to watch yourself go through all of this stuff and imply it without attachment. And then, uh, and when, uh, you know, in our lives, we've met these beings, and that's, you mentioned earlier, what, uh, uh, what grace it is to meet beings who are living in this state. And they are an inspiration. Yes, we can do that. And, you know, it's a lifetime of work. So that's that's what uh, becoming nobody. I'm glad uh, he brought that up, actually. I well, think you it's know, super important. One of my daughters was there mm. with me, and uh, she was, you know, she's not um, a person that practices in the way that we're talking about, but she was deeply moved by the movie, and, and, and because she felt a presence 
that was extremely a great relief to her. That's sort of how she put it, a relief that there was a presence. As, as Emmanuel said to um, Ramdas, death is safe. And th- that could be the three most important words we could ever hear. I mean that because d- mortality, particularly when you get to this stage that I'm at and you're at, uh, you know, mortality is a reality. And uh, you've got to come to terms with it. I mean, you, in whatever way is helpful to you. And so when you, when you say death is safe, that's again, becoming nobody is reaching that point where you understand that you, the trials and tribulations of your life will disappear. And so will the, the great pleasures and sense of achievement and so forth. As you just said, Robert, it doesn't mean that you don't do them. I mean, I, was just, I just went out a couple of hours ago and outside the building was a woman uh, who I absolutely adore who lives in this building. And um, she's in her 80s, I think now, and quite ill. And when I saw her, my heart leapt. It really did. And I ran over to her and gave her a big kiss right on the cheek and, and said to her, you know, Judy, I haven't seen you for a year. How are you? And, and I felt it. I mean, it wasn't like I was just doing I had no reason to, to do it, you know, for any other reason except it was a passionate, heartfelt thing. And it was wonderful. And all the way walking down the street, I was thinking about her and thinking how wonderful she is. That exists, that coexists with the idea of the disintegration of the individual personality. Strangely, it does. It's hard to put it down. It's a quantum thing, actually. It's a quantum thing that you can both be a participating, as you well put it, a participating human being who is not a fly on the wall, and at the same time learn how to move on simultaneously. Because we are moving on. We're moving through this life in a quantum manner. All kinds of things are coming to our head all the time. And when you meditate, uh, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot recently is the fact that uh, the, the concept by people who don't know about meditation is that it, it gives you like bliss and and a lovely feeling and it's just <laughs> lovely. Well, that ain't my experience with it. Not at all. Yes, there can be blissful moments and so forth. What it is for me is the putting forward on a screen in front of me my own preoccupations, obsessions, stupidities, judgments, angers. Here they come. What do you do with them? Well, you see them. And it can be fun, like Ram Dass says, if you get to the point where you go, I can't believe what I was just thinking about. I'm in the middle of a one-hour meditation, and I'm suddenly thinking about something from 45 years ago that angered me, that pissed me off. Like, for instance, I'll give you a good example. When I was doing my television series in Boston at WGBH, a guy came who wanted to be a photographer and shoot the show. Uh, and I was in the control room and what was happening in the studio and all of that. And I didn't know it, but I was told by the powers that be at that public television station that this was a person that wanted to sort of, you know, document what we were doing. So, you know, I was friendly to him and everything. It was only many years later that I learned that he was an FBI informant and was put there to check on what we were doing, because we were doing very anti-war things on every show. That's why I lost the series. Um, he was a person that had perfect poise. He held a, a very nice Rolleiflex in his hand, or he had a cannon sometimes. He would take pictures of me and other people on the show, and I never saw any of those pictures now that I look back. 
So I'm meditating last week, some morning at 5.30 in the morning, and I'm up there and I'm gone and I'm happy and I'm loose and my shoulders are down and I feel the presence of a kind of infinite space. And then suddenly I remembered this guy's face. (laughs) And I wanted to just punch him right in the nose, knock him down right there in the meditation because he was a liar. He said he was a photographer, but he was a spy, spying on me. And it came into my meditation, and you know what happened? I started laughing. <laughs> there was no one in the room, but I just actually started laughing. I thought, mm-hmm. God, what a crazy life this is. That that happened to me all those years ago. I didn't know it was happening. I read about it in a book. Nobody told me. I read about it in a book mm-hmm. saying that Mr. Silver was watched by the FBI. Great. <laughs> and, you know, and I, I laughed and I laughed. And then I thought about it, and I thought, so what? You know, look at me now. I'm here. I'm not gone. He didn't, nothing actually happened. The only thing that's of significance about it is that my brain still will engender the thought. Mm. That's really the thing. Isn't that extraordinary? It is. <laughs> really? It is. What? How? What are you doing? <laughs> right? I mean, and, 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 actually, not just the thought, but the emotion. Because I didn't know this dude was doing this. So I, I didn't have that emotion in, 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 that, in that control room in, in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I had it now. <laughs> 50 mm-hmm. years later, I was pissed off at this dude, you know, <laughs> so for, for being, a, a, you know. So um, the, the simultaneity that Ramdas has explained to us and continues to in his own way is very important to absorb. Because otherwise you can fall into either pot and go nuts. You know, it's like, okay, this life is worthless. I'm not going to go on working this job. I'm not interested in my children. Blah blah blah. Nihilist. Or you, you know, you can't do that. You've got to. You karma has brought you to this challenge. And certainly in many traditions, Eastern traditions, the the millions of incarnations have brought you to this point. For the point of view that this particular life is yet another grade in school, and you either accept that or you don't. And if you do accept it, you see that you're learning stuff about yourself more than you're learning about the world. But as I say, I think it's a quantum experience because both things are actually contradictory and yet live together in one's Boy, do I have something for you. Absolutely. That's so great. Um, I just I happened. Uh, okay. Look, do you know, and uh, we got to get her on a podcast either. Yeah. Everybody out there, Dave's going to be doing some podcasts on his own, not just with me. Okay. So either you get her or I'll get her. Her name is I'm scary. Who's scary? <laughs> sorry. You know, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Elizabeth Mattis Namgel. She is married to a llama. Uh, a llama that I think was uh, brought up by um, Dugo Kensi. Oh. Yeah. Um, and his uh maybe have you heard maybe you've heard of him um zigar kongdrul rinpoche yes yeah right he's i think he was certainly i i'm pretty sure dugo kensi um anyhow i it's this is another hi glenn Thank you again. Thank you, because, Glenn. Yes, this was lovely. I We want to get her on a podcast. But let me just read something. She wrote a book, a small book, and it's about dependent origination, which is one of, by the way, everybody, one of the big clues that the Tibetans give uh, that is um, 
extraordinarily helpful if you can get anywhere near having any understanding of it. Okay, it's it is difficult, but we're going to sh- try and sh- shed a little bit of light here. But this is her experience is extraordinary. Uh, so let me just read. As a child, she says, I remember walking alone to the church a few blocks from my house to light candles. I didn't have a firm idea about to whom I was offering them. I had no concepts about faith or any shoulds or shouldn'ts, do's and don'ts surrounding spirituality. I just felt attracted to the light. The experience of awe and humility that I sometimes encountered inspired this early impulse to devotion and aroused in me a longing to express it. I intuitively understood that this was something that arose deep within the nature of my being, and it did not occur to me to name it. I think we all have had that experience. Whether as a child or as an adult, we are all susceptible to moments when we emerge from our habitual reality. In these moments, we glimpse the magnificence of the world around us. And yet, as we grow into our lives, we are also susceptible to a world that others define for us. Very, we are very susceptible. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not dismissing the importance of language or the way other people think. We rely on others to help educate us about how to navigate the world we encounter. However, throughout all of this inevitable indoctrination, I feel fortunate that I continue to trust and pursue an experience too full for the likes of words, definitions, or labels. I I love that so much. The Mm. allegiance I have to this experience, the allegiance to this experience that I will call grace here. This is Tibetan Buddhist, by the way, okay? But that, of course, has devotion and guru and grace. For the sake of talking about it, has led me on an active, ongoing search both within and outside the boundaries of my own mind. At at the heart of this search lie questions such as, what incites these momentary experiences of well-being? Why do they come and go? And when I don't feel them, does this mean something is lacking in me? Do I lack faith? It wasn't until my early 20s when when I encountered the teachings on dependent arising that I slowly began to find words that spoke directly to these questions. I received my first teaching on dependent arising while sitting on a hill in a small Naples village, which overlooked an expansive and misty valley. I sat there quietly alongside my teacher, Zigar Kongjul Rinpoche, who I had just recently met, unaware that he was about to introduce me to something that would in time completely blow open my world. As I gazed out over the green terraces of rice fields and tiny clusters of mud houses below, Rinpoche turned toward me and holding up his hands with the tips of his two index fingers pressing together in a way that created a triangular roof-like shape, asked, Lizzie, is this, the sh- is this shape one or two? I thought it was some kind of trick question. One or two what, I wondered. I looked at the triangle and saw two fingers composing the shape. 
So I could not say that this shape was one thing, and yet I couldn't say the triangle was two either. So I replied, not one or two, not the same or separate. He, of course, loved that. Um, uh, let's see. Between the time I received this initial instruction and the time its wisdom began to dawn in me, I had a lot of learning and unlearning to do. It turns out that I had adopted some unexamined assumptions about spirituality, some beliefs and doubts. As I formally entered the Buddhist path, I began to grapple with them. First and foremost, I observed a misunderstanding in myself that I have come to understand as a form of fundamentalism. This is, you know, whoa, good stuff, Dave. This funda mm. fundamentalism became in apparent in moments when I felt there was no room for inquiry. I, at such times, I felt that faith was something I was supposed to have that as a good Buddhist, I was expected to hold prescribed beliefs and feel unwavering certainty. And you know, it goes on from there. Wow. Uh, it's, uh, we're going to put up the book. It's a small book. Um, uh, she, uh, I will say this. When, uh, I have to read this. I know it's long, everybody, but it's well worth it. And we'll put up the name of the book and where to get it. Um, cause th this, and I have only read this, this is just the introduction and preface. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, uh, so it turns out that these dry spells, Elizabeth says, the times I assumed I lacked faith because I couldn't reconcile my ideals with my experience have always been instrumental for any spiritual maturity to take place in me. Extraordinarily important. Hey, eh? I suspect this might be the same for you too. You might like me resonate with the words of the German theologian Paul Tillich, who said that doubt is an element of faith. Spirituality has no utility if it runs counter to life as we experience it. Let's face it, when the rubber meets the road, what is the use of the spiritual path if it doesn't address the human condition? What use is any endeavor that attempts to skirt life's dilemmas rather than look directly at them? I mean, enough wow. said, right? Yeah. I mean. Yeah. It's incredibly wise, penetrating statements that she's making. Yeah. Now, yeah. of course, what, what I haven't uh, done is read anything about um, what is dependent arising, dependent origination. And uh, so who wrote the uh, intro to the book is Tupten Jinpa. Huh? His Holiness oh. is uh, translated. Oh. So just you so you him. know, uh, everybody, and again, this book uh, really will ex explicate it, but the idea is that uh, what, while things arise in dependence upon some other factors, they do so not in isolation, but within a web of deeply interconnected complexity. Okay, that's the idea. And the Buddha illustrates this dependency with the imagery of two bundles of reeds leaning up against each other, such that when one is knocked over, the other two would instantly fall. Mm -hmm. So Elizabeth's characterization, he says, of dependent arising as, relation, as leaning is spot on. 
Buddhist thinkers take great pains to explain that the two terms, dependent and arising, should not be understood as having a sequential relationship. Like, I washed my face and had breakfast. It is not the case that things first enter into a dependent relation with each other and then arise or come to being. Rather, dependence and arising should be understood as simultaneous, which is a little bit of what you were saying before we got into mm -hmm. this whole thing, as in the statement, I am going by flying, wherein the two verbs do not refer to two separate sequential acts. So again, you know, these people study for thousands of years. Okay, well, many, um, many centuries, yes. right? Well, you know, 2,500 at least. Yeah. Yeah. So, I wanted to, I actually wanted to not cap that, but yeah. Cap cap quote away. the thing I wanted to read at the, when the film was screened oh, yeah. and we were on, on the panel, but I didn't. It's by our favorite young gay, Minjiro Rinpoche, mm. who's part of this incredible lineage, Toku, uh, Orgen Rinpoche. And I highly recommend reading his double uh, Toku. Orgen Rinpoche's double volume, As It Is. It's called As It Is. Mm. And that thrilled me when I saw the two of them and I bought it. And I've been reading it ever since for 30 years, over and over again. Anyway, Minjur is one of his sons. And he made this statement in his new book. He said, Buddha made a decision to stop trying to get enlightenment and to simply sit down and look into his own mind in order to see what he could learn from directly observing his experience in the present moment. What he discovered is that our true nature is already awake, already perfect as it is, and that what he initially sought to attain was already within him. We practice in order to know what we already are, therefore attaining nothing, getting nothing, going nowhere. And, you know, that was what I, I wanted to, to put next to uh, Jamie's title of that film and Ramdas's uh, trajectory. And then he said, staying receptive to the present, it means allowing for a fresh response to what's happening and becoming more comfortable with innovation than with repeating stale impersonations of your old self. That's Minjir saying that. It could be Ramdas. It's exactly the same, you know, about walking into a room as a professor of clinical psychology and coming out as Ramdas, walking into a room as someone who wants to get something, doesn't get it, comes out angry, instead comes out relieved, because now I can go on to something else. It's the stale impersonations of the old self that causes to be stuck, as you said, uh, and not move into this parallel universe of both dealing with and looking it straight in the face of this karmic Arrangement that we put ourselves in, um, and every minute when you're encountering people, and even when you're not, um, the Dharma is right there, standing next to you, no matter what. And, um, you know, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. I was in a, I'm always telling these silly stories, but I got to, I was in a place called Papyrus, which is a, no, a store. No, sorry. It's no, it's a store that sells birthday cards and things. Oh yeah, yeah. Very sort of high class, and uh, you know, and it was packed full of people, and I was stuck, and I was looking for a birthday card, and standing next to me was an absolutely exquisitely beautiful woman, who was completely bald, and she was uh, jet black, 
and dressed in a, a very modish, beautiful outfit. And I was overwhelmed. I, I, instead of looking at the card, I was looking at her. And not, and I have to say, not in an objectifying way or anything. I was just stunned by how incredible her head was, you know. Mm. And then it just came out of my mouth, even in this Me Too environment. I said to her, excuse me, I'm sorry, but my God, you, you just are extraordinary looking. I'm sorry. And she put her hand on my shoulder and she said, she said the same thing. She said, oh, my God, I had long dreadlocks right down my back until two hours ago. And then I had them all cut off and went skinhead. And I was going through such hell when you said that to me because I missed my locks. And thank you, sir. What's your name? I told her my name. She said, thank you. Thank you so much. And then she went and got what she was going and I got mine and I walked back into the street and I felt like a million dollars because I'd actually gone across something I don't do. You know, you just don't say that to women, random women anymore. Mm. You don't. It's a, it's kind of a, it's a good thing because you know, you're not obtruding on their space, but I, I broke the rule because I was overwhelmed by that sort of beauty that was standing in front of me. Now that's not about, you know, eternal life. It's not really, strictly speaking, about anything we're talking about. But to me, it was a random thing that I did. I took a moment to do something I would never do normally. I never talked to people okay. like that. And it, 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 it made her happy because she was going through a period of a moment of extreme self-doubt that she'd done this thing mm -hmm. to her physical body. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, she was leaving. And then she turned around to me. I was in a line two behind her and then she's and then she turned around to me and she said thank you thank you so much mm. and it just made my entire day yeah. this, and it might have made hers yeah i don't want to sound mushy about this but you this are to mushy. me is an example of living in the you're my the mushiest guy what <laughs> you're the mushiest guy i know i'm <laughs> not you are not it was it's a beautiful mush okay it, it, it happened yeah you no, know and I, it's it's real and you know what it's 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 about becoming nobody. It's what I tell, you know, post the, I think, you know, when we were there, I told the thing of meeting Ramdas for the first time and you just said it, you gave this person your attention because, and it welled up without any thought about return. There is unconditional, it just welled up. Right. You did it. And in the doing of it, there was no David Silver, no thinking, no self-referential, anything. It just came out in that moment. That's our becoming nobody. That's exactly in Ramdas that moment. He, he did the same thing for me. He he just gave me complete utter attention. There was no interest in a return of any sort, and that's that is our path of becoming nobody. I mean, it's a small thing, and then of course we go back and you know we act out our stuff, and but ho from as we go through life. It, those moments uh, stay, uh, and uh, they're they're more the foreground, not the background. I think you're right, and I think that part of the, you know, sort of act of maturation, if you like, is is doing something you didn't do when you were not about this. You know, when you didn't learn anything about it. You know, maybe a teacher did te teach you to be self-aware, or maybe a moment taught you or maybe an illness 
or a loss. And those edges of awareness are what move us, actually. But as I said before, that's you can't count on that. But what you can count on is if you're practicing something, be it the light that Elizabeth was drawn to, though she didn't know why, or be it Paul Tillich's highly intellectualized um, writings about this, about sort of untethered spiritual grasp. Um, that's what I love mm. about, you know, the way the real teachers are with you. It's not usually a question of learning anything. I mean, uh, Casey Tiwari, our friend, uh, who is the close devotee of, of Maharaji, uh, says in the film we're doing, um, when he was filmed in the 80s, he said, well, you know, there was no teaching going on. Every life was just going on there. Everybody did their nonsenses, he says. Everybody did their nonsenses. Yeah, right. There were people making love. There were people arguing. There were people doing blah, blah, blah. It, That's the way they learned in that particular, exact, extraordinary environment. And that doesn't mean that it, it isn't good to go to a, 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 a place and learn and sit and, and, and maybe meditate for 12 hours or whatever, you know, do Vipassana. It, those things are all good too. But the actual integration of yourself into your karmic, exquisitely karmic environment of this life is like looking straight at it, not avoiding it. It's very hard. I mean, nobody said this was easy. But it gets easier a little bit because you begin to see how you're how you're failing. You know, that's yeah, for me yeah, yeah. what all the time. <laughs> I got a closer for our podcast, Good. okay? That Krishnadas gave me. Okay. And it's another little reading and it's well worth it. Uh it says everything as far as I'm concerned. So Bernie Glassman had a stroke. He he did die uh recently. Um and Bernie was a great great a teacher and um, a Zen master. And uh, so as his speech improved, Bernie began doing video conference calls with group of Dharma successors. He said, I don't want to teach. I want to hear from you, but they want to hear from him. So he tells him that after his, his stroke, resting between therapies, he'd entered a state of meditation that took him into the most profound space of not knowing he'd ever experienced, right? Mm -hmm. It felt so natural and organic that he thought nothing of it until someone asked him if he was bored, lying in bed and staring into space. And when he'd been asked more questions about that, tears came into his eyes. And he said, you don't understand. The real question is, what does this have to do with being a mensch? A decent human being is a mensch. If we can't answer that, what are we doing? Mm -hmm. Okay, everybody, that's mm -hmm. all it is. It's His Holiness. My only religion is kindness. It's about that. You know, if that's not happening, all of you know, getting superpowers ain't gonna do it. It just ain't gonna do it. So, so Dave, there you go. Um, I am so happy that uh, we got this opportunity. I had all of this stuff on my mind. And I think we spewed out a lot of stuff. Didn't yeah. We? Hopefully yeah. we didn't get too pedantic or anything. You know? No, on the contrary. Your mushy stuff really helps. Got mushy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, everybody, this is Mind Rolling, Raghu Marcus and David Silver, and uh, on BeHereNowNetwork.com, go to BeHereNowNetwork, and you will find a plethora of amazing podcasts, and we shall see you next week. Bye-bye, Dave. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>